0: This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. Last week we began a new series called Who is Jesus? And we're looking at the Gospel of John, and the first 11 chapters of John really revolve around seven miracles that Jesus does. John calls them signs. And so today we're going to look at the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed, which was at a wedding, a wedding in Cana. And I think it's a text, really, that can help us to get ready for a new year as well. I'm entitled, The Best is Yet to Come, John chapter 2, and let's look at the first 11 verses of that chapter together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine." Let's pray. Father, as we prepare our minds and hearts for 2014, we pray that you would work in our lives this morning by the power of your Spirit. Lord, you are all about transformation. And this can be a year of transformation in our lives if we submit ourselves to the one who is able to transform. And so, Father, we do that now. We humble ourselves before you. We submit ourselves to you. We pray that you would clear our minds of anything that could distract, because you're here to meet with us right now. You desire to speak to us. You desire to work in our lives right now in power. And we pray that you would do that in lives in this room, this hour, that today would be a turning point in the lives of many. And so, Lord, speak to us now through your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure that many of you got all kinds of electronic devices for Christmas, maybe computers or smartphones or tablets or e-readers of some sort. And if you're a certain age, like maybe the age of my daughters, 12 and 14, I'm also sure that you know more about your devices And you've learned more in the past four days than I have in the past four years, which is about how long I've had various versions of the iPhone. In fact, if my iPhone and my iPad could have feelings, I have a feeling they would be frustrated with their owner because they're really sophisticated devices. They can do all kinds of amazing things, but I only use them for a few things. I think the Gospel of John must feel frustrated with a lot of Christians. Because when we think about the Gospel of John, we use it to quote famous verses, which is fine, but this Gospel is capable of so much more. Someone once said this about the Gospel of John. It's safe enough for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And we see that in our text today. Because on one level... It's a straightforward miracle. Jesus turns water into wine. But as we're going to see, there are layers and layers of depth and meaning in this miracle. So what's it all about? What's the meaning? And how does it speak to us as we get ready for a new year? Let's take a look at this in a couple of ways. What we're going to do is I'm going to run through what happens fairly quickly And then we're going to circle back around and we're going to look at the meaning of what happened. So we'll look at the miracle and then the meaning. First of all, the miracle. What's going on here? Well, it's precipitated by a crisis. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So first century Jewish weddings were... Very different than weddings in our culture. They were week-long celebrations. They lasted seven days, and it was a community-wide event. Cana, which is in the northern part of Israel in the region of Galilee, is very close to Nazareth, which is where Jesus was raised. So it's not a surprise that Jesus has been invited to this wedding, and Mary is also invited. In fact, John mentions Mary first here in verse 1. She probably had some sort of official role at the wedding celebration, probably working behind the scenes to help this family with the party and so forth. But then a crisis occurs, which we see in verse 3, when the wine ran out. Now, stop there. Because this was a crisis of monumental proportions in that culture. For a family to run out of line during the course of the seven days would be an absolute disgrace. But at this point, the information is confined. Mary knows about it because she's helping the family out behind the scenes, but the big wedding party, the community, does not know about it. And so what does she do? She goes to Jesus. She takes the problem to Jesus, which is good advice for all of us. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce says this, probably she had learned by experience that to draw his attention to a need was a sure way of getting something done. Jesus hasn't been going around performing miracles at this point. This is the first one, first sign. But Mary knows him well enough by now to, to know that if, if there's a need, the first thing that she does is, Take it to him, which is exactly what we should do when we have a need. Take it to Jesus. He's the one who can do something about it. So what happens? Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about his hour... He's talking about his moment of ultimate glory in the cross and the resurrection and all of that. And when he begins to publicly perform miracles, he's going to be moving in that direction. And Jesus wants to reveal his identity at a time and a place of his choosing. He hadn't planned on doing a miracle on this day. So what he's going to do is he's going to do sort of a behind-the-scenes Miracle. And he has other reasons for doing that too, which we'll talk about as we move along. Verse 5 His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now we see more of Mary's character here, don't we? This reminds us of what she says to the angel when the angel tells her that she, as a virgin, is pregnant. Mary knows this is bound to raise all kinds of questions in the community, but what does she do? She just surrenders to God's will. She says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. I mean, there's just such a sense of surrender in Mary's life, and we see that in this statement, don't we? Just just do whatever he tells you. Again, good advice for all of us as well. So we see this crisis here. What, what's, what's going to happen? Well, Jesus is going to take this crisis and he's going to transform it into a great celebration. Let's keep moving, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so these jars held water that was used for the ceremonial washing of hands, the ceremonial washing of utensils, all of which was part of the religious law. And we'll, again, we're going to pull in the meaning of that in a few moments. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they fill them up to the brim. One of the themes that we're going to see in the Gospel of John is the theme of fullness, fullness. And we've already seen that last week in the prologue of John, in chapter 1 and verse 16, where John says of Jesus, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. There is enough and more than enough in Jesus, as we're going to see in this miracle as well. So what happens? And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So our taste buds are at their most sensitive when? At the beginning of a meal or the end of a meal? The beginning of the meal. I, always the first bite, the first sip of anything is when our taste buds are at their maximum sensitivity. So, what people would normally do is they would serve the best wine first when everybody's taste buds were at the peak of sensitivity, and then later on, as the celebration went on, they would bring out the poor wine, but now Jesus transforms this water into the very best wine. And the master of ceremonies here just marvels at this. And he says, he says to this, this family, you've kept the best until now. So Jesus has transformed this situation from something that would have been just the height of embarrassment and disgrace, something that could have been terrible, And Jesus has taken it and turned it into something wonderful for this family. And John says in verse 11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. John refers to the miracles of Jesus as signs. Why? Well, what does a sign do? A sign points beyond itself. And the miracles of Jesus are they're like signs that are going to point to what? To his glory. So how do we see the glory of Jesus in this sign? I want us to look at, at several things that we see. First of all, we see the glory of his compassion, the glory of his compassion. Jesus did not perform miracles to show off. He did not perform miracles to do something cool. The miracles arise because of the needs in people's lives. Jesus sees someone in need of healing and He heals them. He sees someone who's in bondage to demonic powers and He casts the demons out. Even in miracles like the feeding of thousands of people with five loaves and two fish... It arose initially because people were in a remote place where they couldn't get food and they were hungry and Jesus meets the need. And so the miracles flow out of his heart of compassion for people. And Jesus has moved to compassion in this situation because having grown up in this culture just a few miles down the road, Jesus knows exactly what it would mean for a family to run out of wine in this situation he knew that they would be disgraced he knew that this couple would be the object of ridicule for years to come in that community if this were to if this were to happen he knew that it would take what should be one of the happiest days of their lives one of the greatest memories of their lives and it would cloud that memory because of this social faux pas this social disgrace and and probably this is a family of limited means. That's one of the reasons probably why they don't have enough wine to last throughout the course of the seven days. And so Jesus is moved with compassion. He wants to meet this need. He doesn't want to do anything really public at this point. He says, my hour is not yet come. He was going to reveal his identity later as time went on, but yet he's moved with compassion. He, he wants to meet the need of of this couple, and and we also see his compassion and his sensitivity here too, because think about this. If Jesus were to make sort of a big public display of this miracle, that would do a couple of things that he doesn't necessarily want. It would let everybody at the celebration know, everybody in the community would know that this family had run out of wine. He doesn't want them to know that. And it would also take away from the attention on this couple. And Jesus wants it to be their day. This is their special celebration. He doesn't want to do anything to take the attention away from them. And we just see his sensitivity and his compassion for people coming out here. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 tells us this about Jesus. It says when he saw the crowds, he had a compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, It says that Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. It's possible to look at people without really seeing their situation, to to look without seeing. Like if I open up the hood of a car, I'm just looking at a jumble of wires and a bunch of stuff that's there. But for some of you who are mechanics, you open the hood of a car and you know what it all means. And you know what the parts are and how all the wires fit together and how it works. You really see it for what it is. That's the way that Jesus sees us. Jesus sees every need in our lives and he's filled with compassion to meet those needs. So what should we do when we have a need? Just like Mary, take it to Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So this year when we face problems and challenges, rather than pridefully trying to deal with those things in our own strength, what should we do, the Bible says? Cast all your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Take it to Jesus. Put it in his hands. He is full of compassion. So we see the glory of His compassion in this miracle. Second, we see the glory of His cleansing. The water in these jars was used, as we saw earlier, for the Jewish rites of purification. So when we talk about this, this was not just sort of like we use the kitchen sink to get our hands clean or to wash the utensils. There was a religious reason that they had here, because they believed, that the the religious law taught that if the utensils and hands were not washed, then you would become ceremonially, religiously impure, unclean. Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to come along in his ministry and say, Hey guys, you're missing the point there's a deeper kind of cleansing that you need to be concerned with. So you see passages like this. Luke 11, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Again, you see things like in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. We need a deeper cleansing. We need a transformation, a cleansing of the heart. But how does that happen? How does it happen? Well, we see that as well in this miracle. We see the glory of of His transformation. Jesus transforms the contents of these jars from one thing to another. And it's what He can do with human hearts as well. Now see, we can clean up all kinds of things on the outside. That's exactly what most people in our culture are going to be doing this week. I mean, unless... Unless they're Christians and they understand that true change has to happen from the inside out and has to be heart transformation, what most people are going to do this week with New Year's resolutions and so forth is look at exterior things. I'm going to kind of turn over this leaf and kind of reform this and tinker with that and make this adjustment and get this together. But it's all on the outside. It's all external. Because we can't cleanse and transform our own hearts. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. But He can do it. He can do it. The Old Testament prophesies about it in Ezekiel 36. God says, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you. And so, when we open up our lives to God, then what happens is when we trust in the saving work of Christ is that the Holy Spirit enters our lives and He begins a process of transformation within us. Paul tells us about it in 2 Corinthians 3, "...and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." So God does the work of transformation. His Spirit transforms us. Are there things that we can do to cooperate with God's process of transformation? Yes, and we must. You know, if you're walking through a forest on a summer day, uh, you've been hiking for hours and you are sweaty, I mean, you would do anything to be refreshed and you come upon a gentle, uh, fresh waterfall, you have to take the initiative still to put yourself Beneath it, in order to experience its healing and refreshing. So what are the ways that we can put ourselves beneath the flow of God's river of living water, which runs forth to heal and to cleanse and to transform us? Well, we do that if it's the Spirit that transforms us. We do it by asking for more of God's Spirit. That would be one thing. Jesus says in Luke 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? I mean, this week, many sinful parents like me gave gifts to their children, and we delighted in doing that, didn't we? I mean, we love to see their faces light up. I mean, even imperfect, sinful parents like us delight to give good gifts to our children. Well, how much more does our Heavenly Father, who is without sin and whose love is absolutely perfect, how much more does He delight to give good gifts to His children, and especially to give the Holy Spirit greater measures of the fullness of the Spirit to His children? We should be asking God for that, asking Him for more of His... Spirit. And so asking him for more of the Spirit, reading and studying his word, which are inspired by the Spirit, the sword of the Spirit. And so God uses the Bible as we read it and study it to transform us by the power of the Spirit. So asking for more of the Spirit, reading and studying God's word, praying, spending time with God. Listen, we just t- celebrated this week the fact that that God came all the way from heaven to earth to draw near to us. Could you get up half an hour earlier this year to draw near to Him? God also uses people to transform us. There's a certain dimension to growth in Christ that we only get through fellowship with other believers. Listen, if you're not involved in a Sunday school class, in a Bible fellowship group, a small group of some sort, I just want to encourage you this year, be proactive. Take the initiative to get involved. There's a dimension to Christian growth that can only come as we do life with other believers in that sort of a, of a small group context. And if you are in a class, I want to encourage you in your small, your small group, your Sunday school class, to, um, to really focus on doing life together this year. It's so much more than just studying the Bible on Sunday morning. It should be life on life, a sense of community, a sense of of body life together where you open up your homes to one another and you open up your hearts to one another as you build relationships with one another and you have fun together and you do mission projects together and ministry projects together Um, and there's just this sense of a family on a mission In your group, God uses small groups like that as the process of transformation in our lives. And so we we see the glory of Jesus' transformation in this miracle. Something else, we see the glory of heaven coming down in this miracle. Context is always so important. So, what's the context of this miracle? What has happened at the end of chapter one? This happens at the beginning of chapter two. What's just happened? Jesus has just had an encounter with a man named Nathaniel. They're in a conversation. And what's the last thing that Jesus says to Nathaniel? The last verse of chapter 1. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what Jesus is referring to here is, is the dream that we looked at a few weeks ago that Jacob had at Bethel. You remember Jacob's at Bethel? He lies down one one night and and he has this dream of this ladder, this stairway of coming from heaven down to earth. And what's happening on this stairway? The angels of God are, are ascending and descending. Jesus is referring to Jacob's dream here, but but now Jesus says, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on Me. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, listen, just like that ladder was coming down from heaven to earth, now heaven is coming down to earth in the form of, of Me. Jesus says, I am heaven Coming down to you. I am heaven reaching out to you. (laughs) The ladder that Jacob dreamed about, the stairway that he dreamed about, was so, it was, it was so different than the other stairway in Genesis, which was the Tower of Babel. Remember? We talked about a few weeks ago. The people got together and they decided, hey, we're gonna build a stairway from earth to heaven. And it was all about ego, all about, about pride. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to make a name for ourselves, and so forth. So we're going to build this tower, you know, from earth to heaven. Well, God put an end to that self-salvation project before it even got going in earnest, didn't He? Um, because we can't, we can't build it up, right? We can't, we can't work our way up. We can't build our way up from earth to heaven. No, heaven has come down to us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. So what does Paul say in Romans chapter 10? He says "But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. He's already come down. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He is risen from the dead. What does it say? The Word is near you. It's in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, if you stand before a holy God one day and you say to him, hey, you, God, you owe me heaven because look at the stairway that I tried to build up to you through all my works, you're going to be turned away. The way that we're saved is to believe in what God has done. Heaven has come down to us. God has built that stairway down to us. He has come to us. And our part is to trust in what He's done. And open our lives up and receive the gift of Christmas that God has given, which is Jesus and so we see the glory of heaven coming down. What else do we see? We see in this miracle the glory of his resurrection. Did you notice what, how John begins to describe this in verse 1? John never wastes words. And often his words are they're hints that are being dropped, foreshadowing of something that's to come. How does he begin his description of this, the first of his signs? By pointing to the ultimate sign, right? What does he say in verse 1? On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. John, John, this is by design, okay? You'll see this as we go through John. He's dropping hints. He's foreshadowing. And so here, as he begins to describe this first sign, he's already hinting at the ultimate sign, which is resurrection, which occurs on the third day What differences make that Christ is risen? Sometimes we we come, something happens, and we know that everything else about our lives has to change. Inevitably, it will change because of this one thing. I heard a story about a small college that was left a masterpiece of a painting by a wealthy donor. And so this was the type of painting that could have been in the Louvre in Paris or at the Met in New York. I mean, it was an absolute masterpiece that would be coveted around the world, and it's been left to this small college. So they looked high and low all through their main administration building for an appropriate place to put this masterpiece. They couldn't find one. There wasn't one. So the Board of Governors made the decision that, you know what, (laughs) We're going to tear down this old building, and we're going to build a new one. And it's going to it's going to be designed for this masterpiece. This masterpiece, this treasure, is going to be right at the center of this new building. It's the way it is in our lives when we understand that Christ is risen. Listen, we can't add the risen Christ to. We can't just add him into our old lives. That, that's not going to work. We have to have a new life, right? We're, we, we've got to build a new life, one with Jesus, the risen Christ, right at the center. So this year, what are the remnants of your old life that need to be torn down so that there can be a new self, a new you that's right there with Jesus Christ, with the risen Christ right there in the center of your life? we see the glory of His resurrection. And when we see another kind of glory, we see the glory of another wedding celebration. Jesus chooses to do His first miracle at a party, which is appropriate, because this is the breaking in of God's kingdom. God's kingdom coming. God's kingdom breaking into a dark world. Like we saw last week, the light is shining in the darkness. The glory of God's kingdom is breaking in. That's what we see in these miracles. We see uh, heaven and earth coming together. God's kingdom breaking in. It's time to rejoice. It's time to celebrate. It's appropriate that his first miracle is done at a party. But it's not just any party, is it? It's a wedding party. A wedding celebration. And and again, what's happening? There's foreshadowing. Foreshadowing of another wedding. Foreshadowing of another wedding feast. Because one day, the King of Kings is going to come again. The bridegroom is going to come. And he's going to come for his bride, the church. And there is going to be another wedding feast a wedding celebration. Revelation tells us about it. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper Of the Lamb. You are invited. (laughs) Have you responded. To your invitation. Let's pray. Father we thank you. For the gift of your son. (laughs) That transforms. Hearts. And lives. Father we. Know that. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. All of us are in need of the transformation of the heart that only Jesus can give. And Father, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't yet know him. Lord, would you break into their lives today. Lord, would you ignite faith and new life in their heart and enable them to see the beauty and the glory of the risen Christ, to trust him, to give him their lives. So we just continue to pray. If you're in that category today, right now, as we begin a new year, a new life, a new you can begin, as you open up your life to the risen Christ, would you do that today? Would you turn to Him and trust Him today? Jesus tells us that when we do that, when we would believe in Him in our heart, that we're to confess Him with our mouth, we're to be open about it. That process can begin for you. Today, as we stand and sing in just a moment, God's working in your heart, you're giving your life to Him. I want to invite you just to come and just share with me what what God's doing. We want to celebrate with you and help you to begin in your new life with Christ. Maybe you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family and um, getting ready for a new year um, just by initiating the process of becoming a, a new member in our church family. We want to invite you to step out and to come today. It's just a need in your life for prayer. Our altar's open to you. There are those here at the front that would love to pray with you. So, Father, we give you now this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts right now for the sake of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.